Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Paul's admonition to the church at Rome with respect to how they are to respond to government, which obviously in that day and age was Roman government. The Roman Empire had a pretty ironclad control over all the territory that they called Rome's. And here's what Paul said, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we are ultimately always under your authority. You are our mighty God, our Creator. You are the God of our salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you, Father, for your great grace that you have poured out upon us, for your blessings and mercies. Father, for your loving kindness day by day. And thank you, Lord, that we can gather freely here in this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that, Lord, you would open up the eyes of our hearts that we might have a deeper, more abiding understanding of your creation, of all that you have ordained and established, and the purpose for which you have sent it. Thank you, Father, for your influence, your mighty power manifested upon our society upon our families, upon our church, upon our government. And Lord, thank you, Father, that we could depend on you for all things, that you are ever faithful and true. You are the same today that you were yesterday and will be tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, then, for this chance to open up your word and understand it deeper. We ask it that Jesus would be glorified and his name exalted. Amen. How many of you recall back in the days when you were in maybe junior high or certainly in high school at no later that you took a course of study called social studies? Do you remember that? Do you also remember, like I do, how utterly boring most of the time that was? As a matter of fact, I can recall very vividly that in those days it seemed like that the school hired teachers primarily at least this was in Texas. Now remember, football is the national sport of Texas. And so therefore they hired teachers, primarily who were good football coaches. That didn't make them good social study coaches, necessarily. And especially, I can remember uh, taking one particular course uh, from one, one, one teacher. I don't think we got through half the book as it was in that particular time. So my knowledge of social studies suffered somewhat, and I never certainly followed up any study of sociology in college at that stage of the game. Our focus this morning is going to be upon those two disciplines called sociology and politics. And that might sound boring to you, but I hope by the time we're through with this, we'll understand how that all fits in to the need to have a biblical worldview and if we have a biblical worldview about sociology and politics, or government, if you will, then we'll have a better understanding of God's purpose in our life and how he can work through these institutions for his glory and honor. 
Let's start again, as we always have. Let's define what it means to have a worldview. That's the term that refers to any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that has an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. David uh, Noble, who is the author of Understanding the Times, from which I have based a lot of this material because, as a matter of fact, he is the founder and the CEO of an organization called Summit Ministries. And Summit Ministries is purposed essentially to teach uh, the biblical worldview to especially young people. And there's a training session he has, and uh, this particular week, I had the privilege of listening to a DVD by him, and he's appeared many times with another ministry by the name of Worldview Weekend, which is essentially founded and hosted and uh, really powered by a fellow by the name of Brannon House, H-O-W-S-E. And Brannon has had David Noble on many of his, uh, what they call the, uh, the weekend family gathering in Branson, Missouri, every year around April. And uh, back in 2009, David Noble appeared to talk about the necessity of a biblical worldview. He defined, and he, this definition that you just heard was coming from David Noble, but he also defined one I thought was far simpler and maybe easier to remember. He says, another way to define worldview, it is a bundle of ideas, convictions, and values. A bundle of ideas and convictions and, and values. If you were to have a bundle of sticks there that kind of tied up, one of those, he says, is going to always be theology. How do we look at God? How do we view God and what he does and the purpose uh, that he serves in our lives? And we all have, in some respect or another, whether we thought it through or not, we have a theistic aspect to our worldview. And remember when we talked about the very first week that the theistic worldview is that God is supernatural. It's, the, it's theism. God is supernatural. There's going to be one of three, basically, worldviews as it relates to God. People are going to say that they have a theistic worldview or an atheistic worldview. They don't believe in God at all. Or they have a pantheistic worldview. They believe in many gods. Now, you kind of think, well, there's not too many religions that believe that, but Hinduism is one. Hinduism believes in pantheism. It's many, many gods, thousands of gods, as a matter of fact. But the fact is, is that that's kind of what separates the biblical worldview, and it begins in that point, uh, at that very point of view about God, our theology, if you will. And from that point, since we believe in a supernatural God, from a biblical worldview standpoint, as you begin to approach all the other disciplines of philosophy uh, and uh, ethics and law and biology and also psychology, and today we're going to talk about sociology and we're going to talk about politics or government. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll talk about economics and history. History, obviously, is one of my favorite subjects. So we see these things, and we ask ourselves those questions about theology that says, is there a God, and what is he like? And then we look at philosophy. What's reality? What's it like? What is the reality that we face in our own lives? Ethics says what's right and what's wrong. Law says what's the basis of our law. Remember we talked about God's divine natural law, and then his revealed law? Also, biology, what's the origin of life? And psychology, what's the basic nature of mankind? Remember, psychology is simply defined as basically nothing more than the study of the soul. So what is the mind, emotions, and will of man? What's it all about? What's the nature of mankind? Sociology asks that question, how should our society be structured? And also, politics asks the question, how should we be governed? Economics is going to talk about what produces a sound economy, and then history is going to view with the, the subject about how should we interpret history? How should we look at what's happened to us in the past and what it means for us in the future? Those are the ten categories. 
And we're focusing this morning on that question about the study of, sec of social institutions and society and also the art of governing a city or a state or a nation. Let's look at the key idea on society. Christian sociologists, and there is, by the way, such a thing. There are Christians who have made their life study sociology. They believe that the church, family, and state are institutions that have been ordained by God for a purpose. Now think about this. We talked last week about psychology. And essentially, secular humanism says that there's only materialism, our naturalism. There is only this body and nothing else. And in this body, I have a brain. That's where, supposedly, the mind is. They don't, they don't recognize that man, as a separate entity, is a soul. In other words, the soul is our mind, our will, our emotions. That comprises the soul. And then we have a heart of hearts, or we have an innermost being, as it's called in some scriptures. We have, essentially, a spirit. God has made us a spirit, but that spirit is only alive if we have accepted Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God has come to indwell us and live in us. But the soul is eternal. But secular humanism and nearly all other worldview views say, no, not necessarily. There's nothing more than just this body. And after this body it dies, that's it. There's no more. It does, there's no soul that supersedes the body. But we, where we differ is that we believe, as a supernatural God, he's created us in such a way that there is more than just the body. The soul of man is his mind, will, and emotions. And he has a heart that has been born again, if he believes in Jesus Christ, that gives him everlasting life. So how do we, what do we mean by society? How would we define it? There's a couple of visuals here, just basically, the ones highlighted in red, talking about the structure, community of people, many ways to define it, but when you get down to the brass tacks, it's a structured community of people bound together by similar traditions, institutions, or nationalities. The next slide says, it could be a community, nation, or a broad group of people having common traditions, institutions, and collective activities and interests. So that can comprise a society, if you will. The Christian worldview about society is different still. The Christian worldview holds that we are free to choose between right and wrong, good and evil, and that we shape society in the process, rather than being shaped by society. Christianity grants us control over our society, but it also requires us to be responsive for our choices. In other words, we face the consequences of our actions. This is the big difference between the biblical worldview about society, that these things are instant, and we'll talk about in greater detail, the family, the church, the state have been established by God. They're ordained by him for a purpose for a reason. And there's a wide gap in interpretation between the secular humanist or the Marxist-Leninist worldview about society and what it means. Remember we talked last week that the basic secular humanist psychology says that man is evil only because of his society. In other words, man's born and he's perfectible. He can become perfect. That man is good in nature. And yet the Christian worldview says man is a sinner in need of redemption. Man has rebelled against God and he needs help desperately from God. But the secular humanist worldview says no, no. Man's perfectible. There's nothing wrong with man. It's society. That's the blame. So the secular humanist worldview transfers the blame, if you will, from man, for who's really responsible for it, to society. And therefore, the whole picture of how society functions is transformed in that thinking. Let's look at the Christian perspective, or the biblical worldview perspective on individuals. First of all, Christian sociologists view the person as more important than the social institution. I think this next quote from C.S. Lewis is great. C.S. Lewis once explained that while... Atheists may think that nations, classes, civilizations, 
must be more important than individuals because individuals live only 70-odd years each, and the group may last for centuries. But to the Christian, individuals are more important, for they live eternally, and races, civilizations, and the like are in comparison mere creatures of a day, or for a day. Christians look at the individual as being very important to society. And because of that, because Christians look at the individual as being so critically important, he knows, or we know, that we can change society. We have the freedom and the ability to do that. And look today at the condition of our society, of our families, of our churches, of our nation. Is it in good shape? I don't think so. It's in sad shape. Because we've turned our back on God, beginning many, many years ago, generations ago. And now we're paying the price as we go, further and further into the future. And we see the weakness of all of these things that we have not heeded, the things that God has tried to speak to us and, and show to us and demonstrate to us. We've turned our back on, and now we're beginning to pay a pretty horrible price in terms of our families and even our churches And I think today that the church is more under assault in many directions imaginable. First of all, it's under assault from within. And you hear evangelical Christians turning their back on the very basic knowledge of God and the doctrines that are biblically sound and well-based and founded. And yet, when you have Bible churches proclaiming that universalism, in other words, that Jesus is not the only way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And yet there are evangelical churches today saying, well, there are many ways to get to God, to get to heaven. Jesus is one of them. Might even be proclaimed as the most preferable way. But they're saying, there's other ways. That's universalism. And basically, it's a denial of the truth of God. And that's the kind of condition we find our churches in and our society. And much less, we don't have to go very far to examine the problems with our nation as a whole. We'll talk later more about that as we get into the government thing. But you see, from the Christian standpoint, the individual is important because it is the individual who can change society. From the secular humanist viewpoint, it is the society or the social institutions that are responsible for changing man and making him this mess, this dysfunctional mess that he's in today. Quite a difference. The next visual has a picture of a fellow that I like and think a lot of by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is what he said. It is God's will that there be labor, marriage, government, and church in the world. And it is his will that all these, each in its own way, shall be through Christ directed toward Christ and in Christ. This means that there will be no retreating from a secular into a spiritual sphere. And what he meant by that, that last phrase in particular, is our natural tendency to want to separate our world into secular and spiritual. I think that's a natural tendency of man. That's one of the ways that we demonstrate our unbelief. And we don't understand that God is in all of it, not just the family. That's easy to understand, if, especially if you, believe in, if you have a biblical worldview and you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. It's also easy, obviously, to believe that God's in the church. Heaven forbid that he would not be, though in much cases today, that's the case. But we seem to think, well, God necessarily is not in our labor, or he's not in our, our government. That's secular. Let's keep that apart. Let's not make that part of the Christian realm. And this is what Bonhoeffer really declares is a wrong thing to do. As a matter of fact, he had to live this. He had to put his life on the line for it, and he paid for it with his life. In his famous book, Cost of Discipleship, Cost of Discipleship, uh, this is what really differentiates him from the many, many of the, of the uh, theologians of his day when he really understood that the cost of discipleship could be great. As a matter of fact, it cost him his life. 
The fact is, is that we cannot divide our world into spiritual and secular. It's all Christ. If we have a biblical worldview, we understand that Christ touches everything. He's in every aspect of our life. Not only our family and our church and our state, or even our labor. And why most uh, sociologists look upon the threefold foundation of society being family, church, and state, he's at it, Bonhoeffer is at it, and other sociologists have, well, has added labor, our vocation, the workplace. And that is one of the social institutions that has a great impact on our lives and one of the social institutions on which we can have a great impact. Let's look at uh, the family. Marriage in the family. Man said, this is Adam speaking, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of me. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is where the family was established, ordained by God, because God looked at Adam and saw that he needed companionship. You know what? God has created us in a unique way, that we need a society. In other words, we need those relationships in all phases of our lives, not only in our family, but also in our church, our state, our labor, if you will. God has created us to be a social creature. We are not made by God to stand alone, an island, without the influence of other people, or to be able to influence other people. God's made us uniquely to be, indeed, in every sense of the word, a one who can influence the society in which we live. Also, the Bible goes on to tell us, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Is this a day in where we find that that's the case? No. No. And we'll talk a little later about what secular humanism, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk right now about what secular humanism's view about the family. I think this is an interesting analysis, and this comes again from um, David Noble in his uh, website, All About the Worldview. Humanists use sociology to explain the huge gulf between their view that man is capable of perfection and the real world of sin. They say civilization and cultural, cultural, culture shape the individual. Thus, man is evil primarily because of his culture and social environments are evil, though not through any fault of his own. Society and culture have influenced man's actions and have therefore stifled this inherent goodness. And I've emphasized this last, this next sentence. One of the most stifling of human institutions is the family. Is there a, is there a remarkable difference between the secular worldview and the biblical worldview? One of the most stifling human institutions is the family. Government-sponsored education provides the most desirable method for abolishing outdated social institutions and assure, ensuring the development of free society. That, that fact alone is a good enough explanation as to why more and more families have decided that they will not let the public schools be the instrument of instruction and education for the children. It will have to take place in the home because this attitude is becoming more prevalent day by day. That's the way that secular humanism looks upon the family. And again, this particular non-traditional family is looked upon in the next slide. It says, secular humanist sociologists have suggested a number of alternatives to traditional marriage, such as open marriage, that means open to adultery, triads, group marriage, and premarital living arrangements. That's an analysis, by the way, of a fellow by the name of, of Robert N. Whitehurst, who was the author of such books entitled The New Sexual Revolution, The Sexes, Changing Relationships in a Pluralistic Society. And the last one he wrote was called Renovating Marriage. And obviously he is a secular humanist sociologist and psychologist. And basically he's looking at the family from a completely different perspective than what hope, hopefully you and I are. The next quote is by a fellow by the name of Lawrence Kessler, who again is a, a uh, sociologist and a psychologist. 
And he has suggested a society where there would be no compulsory responsibility for child-rearing. It is supposed that the principles of ethical, productive, and happy living will be learned more readily when children are free of the insecurities engendered chiefly by parents that ordinarily obstruct the internalizations of these modes of thought. He went on further to say, uh, he, by the way, is the author of a book called Is Marriage Necessary? which examines the reasons for having children and suggests some alternative ways of raising children, such as group homes, collective responsibility, and professional parents. He also uh, proposed several other alternatives to marriage in his terms, open marriage, group marriage, child-free marriage, trial marriage, term marriage, three-generation families, communes, and free relationships. Those are some of the things that he suggested in lieu of the family. A completely different perspective, again, from the biblical worldview. Let's look next. Now, we talked about the family. Let's talk about the church. And what's the church's purpose in our society? God ordained the church to proclaim the truth of his gospel regarding sin, repentance, and salvation through Jesus Christ in the world. And by the way, he said, therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you. That's his mandate for us in the church. That's God's great commission. And the whole first and primary purpose of the church is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. But the church is designed for other things as well. The church is designed to serve specific functions such as the gathering of the fellowship for the worship of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're gathered here this morning. That's the primary reason why we're in this building this very day. We've gathered together for the worship of Jesus Christ, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And also the church is purposed and designed to equip the saints, the believers, for the work of ministry, for the work of discipleship, that we might grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a purpose, again, for which he's designed us. He also has provided us with a nurturing community whereby we can demonstrate the unconditional love of Christ to the whole world, to our community. We have an opportunity, as he said, a second commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Love one another. And we demonstrate the love of God by the way we live as a church as we demonstrate that and show it to the world. And he says, this you will know, that's, that's the fruits. All the fruit of God's Holy Spirit in us is that we will demonstrate the Christ-likeness and the way we live so that the world can look at us and know that there's something better, something different than what the world has to offer. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that's one of the primary purposes of why we ought to be here today. We ought to, as a result of our worship, and a result of the preaching of the gospel, be stimulated to love and good deeds. That's Hebrews 10.24. He makes it quite clear. There's a purpose and reason for this. So I would encourage you to think of that. That's why we gather. One of the reasons why we ought to be faithful in the way that we assemble ourselves together on a regular basis. It ought to be an important thing for us to see. The church has a purpose in society, and it is these things that we just discussed. There's a Christian worldview summary. I think that this wraps this whole thing up. And let me read this to you. This is from Thinking Like a... Thinking Like a Christian, Understanding and Living the Biblical Worldview, again by David Noble. He said, Christian sociology is based on the proposition that the individual as well as the social order are important to God, mankind, and society. Christ died and rose again for each person as an individual. God also ordained social institutions to teach love, respect, discipline, work, and community. So therefore... Family, church, and state are the most important of these. Christian sociology focuses both on society as a means of human cooperation with God's will and on the individual as a vital part of the social institutions within society. 
families are charged with the responsibility to reproduce the race of man, if you will. We are to inherit the earth. We are to populate the earth. So we have a responsibility for procreation, but also a great and awesome responsibility for training up our children in the way they should go as it relates to the Word of God. The church is charged with the responsibility of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and demonstrating Christian love within itself and society in general. This is what God meant, what Christ meant, when he said that you are to be salt and light. That's exactly what we are to be. We are to have an influence upon our society that's like salt that has not lost its flavor or savor. The state is charged with carrying out justice, the protection of its citizens, and keeping law and order. And that's a great segue into this next slide, which explains the idea, the key ideas on government and politics. Simply stated, human government was instituted by God to protect man's unalienable rights from mankind's sinful tendencies. By unalienable rights, we mean the rights, the rights that were given to him by God that can never be taken away. Rights that God had intended for every single human being. The fact is, government is charged with protecting those rights. It's one of its first, most awesome responsibilities. And also then, we ought to know and recognize this fact, that man's sinful tendencies can be manifested in government. And government can become sinful, and thereby lose and completely forfeit the intent for which it was ordained by God. We'll talk later about that. So what do we mean by politics? Politics are the activities associated with government, if you looked at it from a dictionary point of view, the activities associated with government, the theory and practice of government, especially the activities associated with governing, with obtaining legislative or executive power, or with forming and running organizations connected with government. Essentially, politics is the art of running government. Not government itself, it's the art of running government. It's the essence, essence if you will, of that government. The purpose of government, as we mentioned, justice, freedom, order. Human governments are instituted by God to protect and punish the guilty, as you read right there in Romans chapter 13, and to preserve the rights of all people against our sinful tendency to destroy those rights. Man's natural inclination, if left uninfluenced, uninfluenced by the power of God, is to become corrupt. Power corrupts, didn't Lord Acton say? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So therefore, we understand that if left unchecked, not without the influence of godly things, godly principles, that man's going to corrupt his government and eventually he's going to try to destroy the rights of the man, uh, the rights that God intended for him to protect in the first place. And therefore, it says, human governments are instituted by God to protect the innocent and punish the guilty, to preserve the rights of all people against our sinful tendencies to destroy those rights. And Jesus said himself in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, he said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Remember what verse 17, or verse 7 rather, of chapter 13 of Romans said, essentially the same thing, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Fear to fear, honor to honor. And Micah 6.8, I think, summarizes a way that we ought to live. And this is saying, essentially, he has told you, meaning God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. That is God's intent for man as an individual, but is also for his intent that man would execute government in the same way, to be fair, to be just, to do what is right, and to walk humbly with God. He's the guarantor of our inalienable rights. No one else is. Let's look for a moment at secular humanism's view on government, and also Marxist-Leninist views on government. 
Secular humanism holds that planet Earth must be considered as a single ecosystem, which means that it is no longer feasible to arbitrarily divide it into separate states and hope that each one can somehow successfully manage itself. Very pessimistic point of view from secular humanism, saying basically, since we're one single ecosystem on this planet Earth, individual states, such as the United States of America, or Mexico, or Canada, or the Chinese People Republic, or Russia, or whatever it might be, are incapable of governing governing themselves the way they should. Therefore, there ought to be something else put in its place that's more logical. And basically, mankind should live in a world community, which in turn necessitates a one-world government. Are we to be leery of a one-world government? Does the Bible give us some warning about that? But that is what secular humanism really wants to accomplish. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say, in Human Manifesto 2000, it argues for the creation of a world parliament based on population which would represent the people, not their governments. In other words, it would not represent the United States. It would not represent the Chinese Republic. It would represent peoples. So guess who would have the greatest representation in governments such as that? Well, it certainly would be not the United States of America. We would be way down the list, considerably down the list, when you come to considering the populations of Red China and, for instance, India. So it would represent that kind of thing. One world government is the way that secular humanism wants to go. But it's interesting also to look at how the Marxist-Leninist viewpoint is on this. The idea for the Marxists is no state at all, since any government, whether democracy or dictatorship, is a, is a vehicle for maintaining class antagonism. Ultimately, what Marxism wants to accomplish is no government at all. Now think about that and what it means. Political power, and by the way, this is a quote from Karl Marx, political power is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing the other one. In other words, it's mostly the bourgeoisie that is, pros- that is, pros- that is persecuting the proletariat, which is the working class, the, the labor class. And also, it goes on to say, again, this is a quote from Marx and Engels and Lenin, between capitalistic and communism society lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of the one into the other. In other words, before a capitalist society be- can become communist, it's got to have a revolution. And that means that corresponding to this also is a political transfer, a transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. In other words, that working class would have to be the dictatorship over all the other classes. It would have to work its way, hopefully, and evolve into basically a classless society. Now think about this in the Soviet Union which tried this for 75 years. Did it work? Well, it would seem to be that the popular consensus is that it did not. Why? Because any society has to have, if you will, somewhat some people to provide leadership. In our society, we have the executive branch of government represented by the President of the United States. In the Soviet Union, it was essentially the leadership class that became like an oligarchy. Well, essentially, that the few ruled the many. They were definitely a class, by the way. They had special privileges. If you know anything about Soviet Union history, you know that they had special privileges. Why? The rest of the proletariat was suffering from the lack of consumer goods. There was no such thing with the ruling class in the Soviet Union. They had all sorts of privileges. And that's always the way it works out in secular humanism and Marxist-Leninism there will emerge a ruling class. And by the way, as you begin to understand where this worldview comes from and where it ultimately leads, that's exactly what would happen with us. If we ever reached a, a, a society in which things were equalized, like income and property ownership and all those things, and which basically emerging from that would be a ruling class, that would not necessarily have to be elected. Because, after all, 
The proletariat basically is too ignorant to do that kind of thing. It can't be trusted to do that thing. They weren't trusted in the Soviet Union. That's why there always exists in that kind of society a one-party system that basically tells the people how they ought to live and provides the privileges to the ruling class. We could go on and on on that, needless to say, but we haven't got that time. Let's understand, basically, some simple terms as it relates to Marxism, and this is this. If you define communism, it is a dream of future utopia. And by the way, I want you to get that word, that's key, utopia, the perfect society. It's the dream of a future utopia brought about by a proletariat revolution, and ultimately leading to a classless society in which all property is publicly shared and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and their needs. Key words. Statism is the political system in which the concentration of economic controls and planning are placed completely in the hands of a highly centralized government. And that's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. It existed that way and managed to exist amazingly for 75 years until basically it collapsed economically. It could not tolerate uh, the movement, the rapid changes in society that was happening in that day and age, and it collapsed under its own weight. Let's talk about, that's enough about secular humanism and Marxist-Leninism. Let's talk about what the Bible says about government. And government is an institution established by God. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. What does it mean by that? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. You remember Cain and Abel, the first murder in human history, where Cain resented his brother's sacrifice, and he killed him out of resentment and envy. But the fact is, is that God established early in his creative process human institutions to govern man, because man cannot be left alone to administer his own justice, and therefore God established governments to take care of things like murder and to punish the evil, to punish the lawbreakers. And that has been the role of government since the very beginning. More than that. But it is one of the things that God has established. Also, the Bible recognizes that government as an institution is sacred and that its rulers are ministers of God. Going back to what we read there in the 13th chapter, the government is the ministers of God. They administer justice. Every person, it says in Romans 13.1, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Remember that in that day, when Paul was writing to the church at Rome, and as we'll look at other verses, when Peter was writing to the Christians in Asia Minor, <laughs> there was not a democratic form of government. It was anything but that. It was a, the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire, and it ruled with an iron hand. If anyone got out of line, then Rome sent its soldiers to straighten them out and to rectify the problems in society. So therefore, this is not the kind of... He's not talking about a democratically elected government. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the scriptures does it tell us we ought to have a democratically elected government. I wish it did, but it really doesn't. But there's principles implied that have much to say about how government ought to be shaped and how it ought to rule men. And dictatorship is not one of them. The fact is, as you look at this other slide, it's the Christian's duty to obey the state. Look at 1 Peter 2, chapters, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one of authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Again, remember, we're talking about the Roman Empire. We're talking about probably in the times of, of Claudia, uh, uh, Claudius, I should say. 
who was the Roman emperor at this stage of the game. Under Nero, persecution began such as man had never imagined in terms of the persecution of the church. Since government is appointed by God, so long as it is serving the purpose for which God created, the Christian shows allegiance to God by supporting human government. Remember what Peter said to the Sanhedrin, as they called John and Peter before them, and declared to them that they were to stop preaching the gospel and stop announcing things in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter's reply was simply, we ought to obey God rather than man. There comes a time when government becomes so corrupted, so at odds with God's divine natural law, much less his revealed law, so at odds with these things that man has to choose about what he's going to do or not, whether he's going to obey and submit to government. It becomes so wicked, so evil, that he can no longer do that. As a matter of fact, certainly in Judea, the Sanhedrin had great control and authority over the people of Judea. But Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. You've told us to stop preaching. We can't do that. In, 19, in the 1940s, actually in the early 1930s, a fellow by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to make a choice. In Nazi Germany, it came down to what they call the Confessing Church, led by men like Bonhoeffer and Martin Niehope Niemöller. And these men decided that they could not submit to the Nazi government. Matter of fact, there was a meeting that took place, I think it was around 1934, between Niemöller and Adolf Hitler and members of that church, the German church, which basically was a Lutheran church. And they met and discussed, and, and, and Hitler kind of said to them, I want you to understand that I'll take care of the German people. You take care of the church. And Niemöller replied, God has given us responsibility for the German people. And Hitler was so angered, he never said another word, but he turned around and walked away. And shortly after that, Niemöller began to pay a price. As a matter of fact, that very evening, his study was ransacked by some Nazi thugs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to come to the conclusion that he had a difficult choice to make, whether he was going to acquiesce and try to live, again, the spiritual life, or whether he was going to get involved in the overall aspect of society, and he chose to get involved. Matter of fact, he became uh, one of the conspirators to assassinate Adolf Hitler that took place on July 20th, 1944. And for that, he was arrested and imprisoned. And just weeks before the Germans signed the Armistice of Surrender, in May of 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed, taken to the galleys, and hung. He paid for it with his life. So even though years before he had written the book, The Cost of Discipleship, he knew what it was to have to sacrifice. So he learned that he had to obey God rather than man. And as a consequence, he paid for it. The ultimate price of discipleship. One other slide that goes on. What the Bible says about government. Government must adhere to the God-ordained principle, but all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Since this is a reflection of God's character, government is to establish order. And that's a very basic thing we understand. We can't drive down the street at 100 miles an hour. That's not what we can do. We can't just do anything we please. We have to understand that government has created laws for the protection of society. We can't just go out and settle the score with someone that we would like to and say, well, I've, I think that person is so odious and so uh, absolutely disgusting that they deserve death, and we could decide to be the judge and juror and executioner. We can't do that. God's divine natural law makes sure that we understand that's not an option that we can exercise. And so, therefore, this is what we have to know, that God's established the government for a purpose. It's a preordained, and it should be done decently in order, and there should be order in our society. And that's one thing that God wants us to do through human government, not only freedom, justice, and order. 
government should also be participatory so that Christian citizens can better influence the state to conform to God's will. And Proverbs 11.11, the first part of that says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. The blessing of the upright means that they are participating in the government of that city, if you will. And you and I have a responsibility of participating in the divine institution that God has ordained through the family, the church, and the state. We have, a, we have not only a right to do this, an individual right, but we also have a duty to do this. Certainly, that duty is very basically in what we do when we go to the polling station, whenever that election is held. We participate in government in that way, but we ought to participate in other ways as well. As a matter of fact, it used to be that the overall attitude among evangelical Christians was that government or politics is something that's just too dirty to get involved with. Therefore, I just wash my hands of it. I'll have nothing to do with it. And that's as wrong an attitude as it can possibly be. Because I think that's one of the reasons why we find our society in the condition in which it is today, because evangelical Christians who should have biblical worldviews, and don't remember, only 9% of Christians who claim to be born again have a biblical worldview. So therefore, those people have abandoned their responsibilities, civically speaking, and have let government be turned over to those who are as as ungodly sometimes as what we find to find in secular humanism and Marxist-Leninism. So we have no one to blame, in a way, but ourselves. And yet, when we do get involved, then, on the other hand, there is a remarkable amount of criticism that this is almost like the violation of church and state. And so therefore, you know, secular humanist society says, uh, we don't want Christians involved. We have a moral responsibility before God because these institutions have been ordained by him to be involved and to do all we can to influence those organizations for the good of Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility when you think of it. Lastly, what the Bible says about government. As Christians, we understand that power tends to corrupt, so a government that dispenses power is better than one that gathers power into the hands of a few. I talked earlier about the oligarchy that comes about in communism and ultimately would be the same thing if there were a secular humanist worldview, world parliament. What would come about, in essence, is a government that would be governed by the few. So this is another thing about participating in government and why we need to do so. And lastly, there's one other significant aspect in that is you'll read Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. God gave wisdom to our founding fathers. Now, they weren't all perfect men. They were sinners and in need of redemption, just like you and I. Some of them were deists, but they believed in God. Most of them were theists. They believed in a supernatural God. Again, I think a significant number of them, of them were were born-again Christian men who believed that we had a unique opportunity in this country to form a government that was different than anything that had ever been formed before. As a matter of fact, the model for that, to a great degree, is what you see here in Isaiah 33:22. For the Lord our God is judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He's judge. That's the judicial, judicial aspect of our government. He is lawgiver. That is the legislative aspect of our government. He is our king. And that is the executive aspect of our government. You can see where the three branches of government came about. Think about this. They were purposed for a reason to be that way. Three separate branches of government with checks and balances. And that's kind of a key word that would never been heard before, before man thought of this. Checks and balances. One aspect of this government could not take over, like the executive, could not run the country without the permission of the judicial and the legislative. So therefore, as a consequence, there were checks and balances to make sure that one branch of government didn't dictate to the rest and suppress the rights of the people. 
Those checks and balances are in operation today, my friends. If you look and you hear, what's the complaint you hear in the media all the time? Why can't Washington get anything done? Why can't we resolve these problems? Guess what? The Founding Fathers' principles in operation so that the executive branch is not dictating to the rest of the country what's going to happen. There is a check in Congress, especially in the House of Representatives, that's preventing this whole thing from running amok. Otherwise, it would be very easy for our government, to one branch of the government, especially the executive branch, to find it feasible to take control and to run the country. And some of that's happening in some ways. I'm not going to deny that. But the fact is that we need to understand that God gave a principle here. And our founding fathers were able to discern that. Sinners, though they might be, imperfect as they were, though some of them were slaveholders, which is one of the pervasive evil that this country allowed at its founding. Nevertheless, there is a book called The 5,000-Year Leap about the fact that this government that was formed in this nation in the 18th century, the 19th century, was better than any ever done before. And I really believe that because they were people who believed in biblical principles. Many of them had biblical worldviews. And as a consequence... They were able to form and shape a government that's better than any that's ever come before it, as imperfect as it might be. And by the way, anything created by man is going to be imperfect. Nothing that man does will ever be perfect. That's why the secular humanist view that man is perfectible is completely and utterly false. It cannot be done. Man is a sinful creature in need of redemption, and he's found that in Jesus Christ if he chooses to believe in him and walk in his way. The fact is, is that that's what we need to understand. Let's close by saying this this morning. A verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, I think says a lot about why we need to have a biblical worldview about not only society and government or politics, but every aspect of our life. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the, of the flesh, but divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations of every lofty kind raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The truth we have in Christ Jesus is a divine truth. It's powerful. It's able to demolish and destroy man's vain arguments against God. Therefore, we need to have a biblical worldview. Not because that's the thing to do, but because the Bible really is saying to us, we have a responsibility as individuals in our society, to reach out and change the society in which we live, beginning with the family, then the church, and then the state at every level, whether it's local, state, or national government. The fact remains is that we have an awesome responsibility. It says this in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Are you ready to make or to give an account for the hope that is in you? You ought to be. The only way you're going to be able to do that is to have a solidly biblical worldview. Based, rooted, grounded in God's divine, divinely inspired truth. Which is profitable for teaching, reproof, and for correction. And for training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's the basic thing we need is to have a biblical worldview that will help transform our society, to change it to the glory of Christ. We're not going to have the perfect society in this world, in this day and age. It will not come until Jesus comes again and establishes a kingdom upon this earth to demonstrate to us the way we ought to have done it from the very beginning. I think that's one of the great purposes of that 1,000-year reign that shall happen. God will establish his kingdom to show us what we should have done from the very beginning. But one thing we need now to do 
is to be able to give an account for the hope that's in us. And the only way we're going to do that is to have a, God, a, a worldview that is rooted and grounded in his truth, in his word. And then we will be able to make testimony to the world to what Christ Jesus can do for us and for the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your truth revealed through the word that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide, Lord, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We thank you, Father, that you can enable us to understand your word, that indeed your Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we might have this understanding. Open up our hearts and minds that we might have a deeper, deeper understanding every day of our life, God, of what you want us to do, what you want us to accomplish as your disciples, as your believers, as your followers. That Jesus Christ might be glorified by all that we say and do, and his name exalted. Lord, may he alone be lifted up, so that men and women and children all over this world would be drawn unto him, who alone is Savior and Lord. It is in his name we pray these things. Amen.